Hallelujah. Father, this day we rejoice in the fulfillment of Jacob's dream, heaven's staircase touching earth. Lord, the fulfillment of these very things we've been considering in weeks past from your holy scriptures took place when Christ himself, whose very name among the references to him is Emmanuel, God with us, became a little one, took on flesh as we have sung and dwelt among us, took on the burden of our sin, preached the kingdom, the message of the gospel of the kingdom, went to Calvary, was dead, buried, and rose again on our behalf. The Emmanuel, God with us, reality, reconciliation fulfilled because of sufficient sacrifice, a perfect mediator, a prophet, priest, and king, the one who would stand in our place, the high priest who would offer his very own flesh and blood on the altar of sin's atoning demands is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our Emmanuel, and it is his name we praise and lift up this day. Father, now as we turn to your holy scriptures, as we see the beautiful truths written upon the hearts of the faithful who look forward to the day of your coming, our eyes are open, Lord Jesus, to the plan of history unveiled through the ages fulfilled in Christ in fresh and powerful ways. Lord, we pray that you would answer the prayer of the psalmist in our case, that you would open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. We pray, Lord, that though we are sojourners to some degree in this earth, in this intermediate time, Lord, we have a sufficient source for which to chart our way until the morning star arises in our hearts by pay atten paying attention to the prophetic word, as Peter has reiterated in his second epistle. Father, I pray that you would give us attention to your scriptures and that you would give us a love that would uh, seek them out more fully and that would write them on the tables of our hearts would seek to apply them in obedient faithfulness and proclaim them to the lost who yet in their transgressions and sins must bow before the revelation of Christ and His Word, repent and believe. We pray that you would accomplish fruit from this service today by the power of your Spirit using these means to equip your church. For the sake of your name and the advance of your kingdom, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. I often wonder, as we gather each Sunday, how many saints of old who were in harm's way and had less privileges than we do, freedoms or ability to gather in the name of Christ, would be envious in some sense of our ability, of our freedoms to gather here. I pray that we would not take for granted the great gift and blessing that God has bestowed upon us, that we can gather to worship Jesus Christ Jesus Christ is worthy of our worship, even if it would cost us our life. Nevertheless, this morning, we have what little cost there was to pay to come here today is absolutely worth it as well, of course. And so today, let us reorder our priorities and attention by turning to the Scriptures, which is the ground and anchor of our soul's assurance, in Psalm 119. We'll continue in our Psalm 119 series today in the third section Gimel, named for the third letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and the passage in consideration today will be eight verses, verses 17 through 24, under this title, The Trial of Sojourning. So I've briefly laid out for you, and the last time we were in Psalm 119, a basic outline for this entire super lengthy chapter. After the introductory 
uh, framework that is given to us or the introductory verses, the first stanza, if you will, of this poetry, of this song in Psalm 119, 1 through 8, each of the following 21 sections introduces a presenting challenge. And the answer for how to cope in light of that challenge is the same every time. In summary, we could venture a theme of the entire, uh, the entire scope of Psalm 119 as the sufficiency of God's word. And then more specifically, we find the word of God is sufficient for the trials of youth. That was the theme of our last sermon in section 2, Beth, the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, verses 9 through 16. Furthermore, today we find that the word of God is sufficient for the trial of sojourning, which means to travel in unfamiliar territory or a temporary dislocation from home, heading towards the promises of God we find in the greater scope of sojourning, a concept in scripture, but needing faith along the way. The word of God is sufficient for this as well. Thirdly, suffering will find the word of God is sufficient for that. In our next section, next time we revisit this chapter, selfishness, scoffers, derision, captivity, false witness, slander, persecution, conspiracy, deception, affliction, the list goes on. And so it is uh, just a great wealth and treasure to us to realize that at this lengthy list of trials that a believer may face, we find the reassuring proclamation that God's word is sufficient for all of them even the trial of sojourning, which we consider today. The aim of this morning's message, therefore, is to equip the saints from Psalm 119, 17 through 24, for our journey of Christian obedience. As believers in the new covenant and our calling as Christians, being obedient to the Lord in spite of the difficulties or the cost that that might require, we can relate to the sojourning call of those of old. And in our uh, circumstance today, these, therefore, these principles certainly apply. With the scriptures open to Psalm 119, 17, and out of reverence for God's holy word, would you stand with me again this morning as we hear his scripture proclaimed in our ears, Psalm 119, 17 through 24. Here is the word of God. Gimel, deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. To take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight they are my counselors. This is the word of God. You may be seated. <clears throat> Let me remind you what an acrostic psalm is, just in case you forgot. What an acrostic psalm is, is the sequence of the Hebrew alphabet. The first letter, or, or the first letter is in the first, introduces the first word, and so forth. Now, we've identified Psalm 119 as an acrostic psalm's Psalm of acrostic psalms. It's like an acrostic psalm on steroids. The first letter in the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, is used to introduce all of the eight verses in the first section, one through eight. And similarly, the second of the Hebrew alphabet, Beth, is used to introduce the first letter of each verse, is the second letter in the Hebrew alphabet for, again, eight uh, verses, and then the third, and so on, 
brings us to our text today, Gimel. Gimel, that Hebrew letter, the third, introduces each of the verses, the eight verses in our section as well. And so past sermons you could review for some of the significance of this orderly literary structure. Among other things, speaking to us of the beauty, symmetry, design, power, ingenuity of our God, even as it's demonstrated in this literary masterpiece. And furthermore, we have noted that there's so many parallels and truly rich context to glean from Psalm 119. And so far, I've noticed in the first three sections parallels to the experience of the Exodus deliverance of God's people out of Egypt. We have noted, for instance, how rich the context of the olive section appears when considered in light of the giving of the law. The giving of the law shook the Mount Sinai with the fire and the glory, the power, the thunder, and this presence, this manifest presence of Almighty God and His very voice, the sound of many trumpets blasting, causing those sinners on the periphery to keep their distance lest they be killed and to cover their ears and to uh, cover their eyes and to wince because the power and the majesty and the manifest glory of God was too much for a sinner to sustain. And furthermore, the finger of our very God himself reached forth from heaven and wrote on stone tablets the ten oracles, the ten words, the ten, uh, of the, uh, the ten commandments, which become symbolic of the entire law of God. And so when we consider the weight of that moment, it makes sense that all these verses in Psalm 119 would be given to take seriously what was delivered to God's people. Truly, 176 verses of worship are just the mere tip of the iceberg of what God is worthy given this manifest display of His glory in the giving of the law. So the first section, Aleph, is, is really emphasized, or it's, it's underscored in the context of the giving of the law recorded in chapters like Deuteronomy 4 and 5. Following this pattern, the next stanza, Beth, comes alive in light of the obligation and privilege of teaching that law to one's children, the next generation. How would the significance and value of the giving of the law of God be preserved culturally among God's people? Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 and 11, 18 through 19, commission parents to raise their children, as Paul would later say, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and to do so by placing his law on the doorposts of their house as a fixture in their home where they hear it and memorize it, and they're counseled and educated, and they're instructed in the way when they rise up, when they lay down, when they go, when they come, and so forth. And in light of this, we see the Beth section of Psalm 119 opening with a question. How can a young man keep his way pure? The answer is by guarding it according to your word. And so the duty of Christian parents in the New Testament application, sharing the scriptures with the next generation, with their children, actually answers the question that is the means whereby, the ordinary means whereby God has ordained that a young person survive the trials of youth. And then that leads us to our third section today. And if we consider the journey or the wilderness wanderings of the people of Israel as they came out of Egypt, as a parallel for our, te for our text, again, this comes alive. In other words, the psalmist recognizes an affinity with that first generation of believers called forth from the bondage of their slavery under Egyptian tyranny. In verse 19, he says, I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. In other words, one of the most prized possessions, the most prized possession God's people took with them, packed with them, so to speak, on their journey, was the law of God given to them on Sinai. This would be sufficient for their sojourning. 
and nothing short of this would be able to preserve their faith and equip them for the call of this long 40-year journey unto the promises of God. So this second section, or this third section, is thereby reinforced by this pattern as well. The Word of God is sufficient for the trial of sojourning. Once again, these verses correspond with the calling of the Israelites through the wilderness unto the promised land. They uh, did not travel empty-handed. Yahweh revealed to them His word and law upon, upon Sinai, and this revelation would prove their most valuable, valuable possession, equipping them for the trial of sojourning unto that which God had promised, even to their forefathers, ages past, years, hundreds of years earlier. The psalmist, though born at an entirely different time, presumably at an entirely different historical era, is no less grateful for this application of the Word of God as he acknowledges a life situation that every believer can relate to. That is, we in some sense can relate to this calling to follow the path of God's people out of Egypt. A famous hymn writer, I think, William Cowper, put it this way. He says, To an elect man, life is a great benefit. For by it he goes from election to glorification by way of sanctification. The longer he lives, the more good he doth to the glory of God and the edification of others and confirmation of his own salvation, making it sure to himself by wrestling and victory in temptations and perseverance in well-doing. What Cowper is recognizing is that there is a pattern in our calling as believers regeneration leading to a life of obediently following christ whereby we're transformed into his image sanctification and then our promised land glorification and this time in between when you are born again and when god calls you home or when he returns could well be described as a calling to sojourn in some sense that is to travel in faith in faith that the journey that you're taking, God will preserve you along the way. That there's purpose in it, even though it is fraught with trial. And then to remember that He equips, He packs His people, if you will, with the survival tools, equipment that are necessary for that journey, and chief among them, the Word of God. The Word of God is sufficient for the trial of sojourning. In this sense, believers of every age have a sojourning or traveling call. We are to cling in our journey unto the, uh, uh, we are to cling to him and to his word and to his means in our journey unto glory come what may. The psalmist insists, the word, the law, the commandments, the rules, the testimonies, and the statutes of God are to take priority above all else. This is what we pack in our bag first, if you will, before we venture into the calling of obedience in the Christian life, if we are to remain uh, uh, thoroughly furnished for every good work and thoroughly armored for the task at hand. A sojourner faces changing and unpredictable challenges along his journey. So in this analogy, you know, the people, as they traveled, there was uncertainty and instability in their experience. They didn't know whether the next pagan neighbors that they traveled across their land would be friend or foe. They didn't know maybe what language would be spoken. They were uncertain whether they would face an ambush on the way or Pharaoh and his armies chasing them from behind. Privation, no water, where are the crops, no flocks, uh, manna God provided miraculously along the way. But nevertheless, these fears as they embark upon their journey would be real. The uncertainty, 
of the changing situation, the unpredictability that this challenge of sojourning would present. So for people in this situation, sojourners, they should especially appreciate universal truths. That is, the Word of God is true and powerful in every circumstance. No matter the historical era, God's Word, just like Him, never changes. No matter the cultural context, God's Word is an absolute standard of ethics. God's Word never changes. It is the rock, the anchor, the foundation, the mooring post, or that guiding star, so to speak, that lamp in a dark place that sets our course, like we studied last week, according to 2 Peter, until the morning star arises in our hearts. Similar language is used later in Psalm 119 when the psalmist begs of the Lord that his word would be a lamp unto his feet and a light unto his path. This light never grows dim. It always is brighter than the darkness. It always keeps us on the correct path, no matter how many challenges face us. That's the sufficiency of the word, law, commandments, rules, statutes, and testimonies of the Lord. Synonyms for the word, the law, in a, in, a, in a term, the revelation of the Lord is summarized by all these synonyms that the author uses. So we should appreciate the universal truth of the scriptures, the ethical absolutes, the rules and directives that will apply in every situation. Every Christian, therefore, should heed these words and treasure the word of God above all else as he prepares for the trials of life. Let me give you a heading and three points under which we'll consider in more detail these ideas today. Number or the heading is equipment for life, according to Psalm 119, 17 through 24. So under this heading of equipment for life, we have the sojourner's provisions, verses 17 and 18. Secondly, the sojourner's calling, uh, 19 through 21. And thirdly, finally, the sojourner's allies, verses 22 through 24. So taking as our theme this trial or challenge of sojourning, we have, first of all, equipment for life, according to Gimel, the third section, Psalm 119, 17 through 24, the psalmist expounding on our provisions. Verse 17 says, in, by way of request, petition to the Lord, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Now, one of the popular heresies of our modern era has come to be known as the so-called prosperity gospel, which basically holds out promises of material gain and wealth prominence and so forth based on the, uh, based on the presupposition that the great purpose of our calling is to benefit our life right now. Well, what's wrong with this kind of teaching is that it makes us the beneficiary of salvation when it's proclaimed out of balance. As if to say the reason that Jesus came to die is all about you and the safety and the um, provision and the peace of mind and, you know, whatever you crave with your material well-being and your uh, livelihood and your wealth and your uh, positions in society and so forth. The problem there, again, is that man becomes the center um, when the gospel is proclaimed according to its greatest benefit, you know, being for us. The psalmist would have none of this. He does ask that God would prosper him, but his motive is entirely different than the misguided selfishness we sometimes color over with a thin veneer of gospel-ish preaching, but in reality just twisting of scripture. He says, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. What does the psalmist need on his journey? 
Well, first of all, would be the daily necessities. The sojourner has less to take for granted, does he not? Consider yourself in the shoes of the uh, Israelites leaving the bounty of the leeks and onions of Egypt. Yes, they had plenty to eat, but they were enslaved and they were under the tyrannical thumb of, a, of the whole society that had kept them against their will in hard and backbreaking labor for some four centuries. But now God is calling them to freedom. But this freedom also comes with it a challenge of faith that God would bountifully provide for you your daily necessities. Now, in uh, Matthew 6, verse 11, the basic needs of our existence are a theme of Jesus' model prayer, the Lord's Prayer. You recall that after Jesus te teaches us, or after teaching us to pray, that the Lord's name would be hallowed, and his kingdom would come, and his will would be done, we are to seek him for our daily necessities, for our daily bread. The basic needs of our existence are designed to move us to prayer. The basic needs of our existence are designed to move us to prayer. We referenced this passage in our prayer meeting this morning before service, but Paul says a reason why he in 2 Corinthians towards the beginning suffered even unto life itself was to teach him that his dependency was on God and not on himself. And so this real, or this real threat of not knowing where tomorrow's meal comes from places a certain kind of a unique dependency and crying out to a source that you consider powerful and able and willing to answer you and to provide what you need. Now, our culture today, our government is arranged in such a way that we have all kinds of idolatrous political figures that stand in the shoes of God and promise our daily bread by way of entitlement programs and by way of whatever uh, stupid things they say every time another election rolls around and another campaign fires up. And we betray our idolatry, don't we, when we consider that the government and its entitlement programs and safety nets under safety nets and welfare and this and that will be a way where we can secure our peace of mind. You know, this happens through private means as well, insurance and so forth. You see, the necessities of our daily life are meant to move us to prayer. The question is, who do you pray to? Do you pray to the next political hero who's going to guarantee a thriving economy? Don't, don't do that. That's idolatry. Do you pray to, you know, the means that you have been able to accrue over the years in your 401k or whatever, that which Americans define as, you know, security, social security, uh, you know, is actually named for this very concept. How can we ensure our livelihood when we have less ability to provide for ourselves down the way? Remember, the necessities of life by design are to move us to pray. And don't get it twisted. All these things I just mentioned represent idols to which people pray to. Oh, you don't, maybe don't sit down on your knees and say, oh, great government, send me this check. But prayer doesn't always have to look like that. Prayer is, can just be a communication or a dependency or an acknowledgement of one's personal trust on a source of provision. All of these things need to be held accountable to the law and the word and the testimonies and the statutes and the power and the sovereignty of God. There was a time in the Egyptians or in the Israelites wandering where they wanted to return yeah, we had slavery. Yeah, it was an idolatrous nation. Yes, it wasn't according to the promises of our forefathers, but at least we had leeks and onions. They're praying in a way that Moses would return them back to the assurance of their daily bread on the basis of the idols 
and the and wicked culture and what they could boast back in their land of bondage in Egypt. The psalmist recognizes that sufficient means for the trial of sojourning, when sometimes our daily bread is threatened, is found not in Egypt, not in the government, not in welfare programs, you know, using these ancient and modern examples of idols who would love to lay claim to this kind of thing, but instead, as he says it, in the word, the law, the commandments, the rules, the testimonies and the statutes of the Lord. Give us, O Lord, this day our daily bread. How many of you guys, hey kids, do you guys pray before your meals? Raise your hand if you pray before your meals. Yeah, just about all the kids, I see your hands raised. I encourage you families to do that, absolutely to pray before your meals. But I would exhort you, don't let it be just some sort of kind of tradition that doesn't have real depth and meaning that you do because you've always done or your parents always did. I would encourage you to take that time of acknowledging the Lord's provision before your meal to take seriously the charge or the example of the psalmist in Psalm 119.17. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. In other words, thank you, Lord, for this food, and I pray that we would use it to glorify your name. We know we don't deserve it. We know it comes from you. So let us not take it for granted and let us be motivated by your provision to further obedience and faithfulness unto your great name. That's a good vision, if you will, for prayer before meals. A basic application that can acknowledge these truths from Scripture, both the Lord's Prayer and Psalm 119. Notice not only are there daily necessities that the psalmist needs, and he beseeches the Lord on behalf of his bounty to supply, but there's this motive as well. Why does he want to be bountifully supplied? So that I may live and keep your word. How many of us in our hour of desperate need cry out to the Lord for physical healing if we're feeling sick? Cry out to the Lord for that next job to be secured. If you're like a, a tradesman contractor like myself, it always feels more comfortable to have a contract signed to work for the winter. How many of us ask for those kinds of things in order to feel uh, secure, in order to feel you know, less anxious and more at peace with our immediate demands? Well, there's a higher motive for which the uh, scriptures teach us to pray, and that is that we may live and keep your word. The glory of God should be the purpose of our provision. Provision unto obedience is the charge. How many lepers of the ten healed realize the purpose of their health and well-being? The purpose of the health and well-being when Jesus touched those lepers is that they might be free to worship God. You see, at that time, well, there's a covenant change happening with the arrival of Christ, but prior to, a leper would be ostracized because of his condition of skin from the fellowship, from the assembly of the people of God. And so when you're praying for health, I know some of us are missing today because of health. One great way to pray is, Lord, restore unto me my health, that I might worship your name and gather again with your people. The lepers that Jesus touched, nine of them went along their way, but only one realized the true purpose for that healing, to worship the Savior. And when the Spirit touched his heart and it dawned on him, he went back and did the right thing. He fulfilled the purpose of his own healing, knelt down and worshipped the one whose sovereign touch can heal the soul, heal the body, cleanse a leper. 
And this is the point of Psalm 119.17. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Furthermore, in the Gospels, there was that time when Jesus fed the 5,000. They began to follow him. But he, knowing their heart, right, looked past uh, this huge congregation that he was gathering and realized that the reason for their following him was because they had, their belly had been full. And he began to teach them that there is a higher reason for our daily bread. And indeed, if they did not recognize that the daily bread that he granted came from the bread of life himself, they were missing the whole point. The sojourner's provisions, therefore, involve daily necessities, but they're also motivated as he seeks the Lord to glorify him. And uh, these provisions touch the area of the spiritual as well. Verse 18 says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your, uh, out of your law. In a sense, you could uh, translate or you could assume that there's two categories here that he's referring to. Deal bountifully with your servant. Open the storehouses of your provision that I may live. But secondly, open my eyes that I may behold the wondrous things out of your law. Not just food for our daily, the daily bread that we need for our day-to-day sustenance, but food for the soul that strengthens us to appreciate that which sustains us through a different kind of trial. Not starvation for lack of nutrition, but starvation spiritually for lack of the word of God. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Now, I don't know how much time to spend on this. I think I'll give you some references and let you study on your own time and spare my comments uh, today just in the interest of time. But, you know, I read a passage like this, a verse like this, and then I think, what are some examples That is, what are some examples of wondrous things out of your law? They are many. I've appreciated them as I've discovered them, and I guarantee I haven't even scratched the tip of the iceberg of the wondrous things in God's law. Speaking of leprosy, if you were to go to Leviticus 22, 1 through 11, you would see that there were laws against ceremonial uncleanness. If there was a dead animal, if there was a leper, a skin condition, There needed to be distance, ceremonial distance, and so that uh, this presence of death, in a sense, represented that which was corrupt and outside of what the holiness of God's presence required. So a leper must resort to a colony, as we said before, outside of the fellowship of the beloved. Or a man or a woman, you know, on their pathway to worship, if they were to touch a dead animal, they must be considered ceremonially unclean unless and until they went through a washing ceremony. You had to be careful what you touched, is the lesson. And uh, priests, before they would go into the temple, there had to be multiple cleansings in order for them to be appropriately attired and prepared to meet the Lord in His presence. And as you look at these examples in Scripture, it's as if, I've heard a commentator say this before, it's as if the unholiness, corruption was radioactive. So this whole uh, death that attended the way of our fallen world, both in soul and in our, in our environment, if you got it on you, it had this kind of radioactive effect and you had to uh, wash it off and, and so forth. Don't touch what is unclean. There's uh, laws against touching that uh, were given at, the, at Sinai as well. Exodus 19, 9 through 12. 
The presence of God required a proximity between himself and sinners. And God told Moses, tell the people to keep their distance. If they so much as touch this mountain, they are to be killed. Because no unwashed sinner is to be uh, tolerated in my presence. This was a mountain where God would reveal himself in glory. And if you touched it, you're immediately struck dead. Now, are these wondrous things out of the law of God? Well, they certainly are. At first glance, someone might read them from a secular, humanistic perspective and think, what archaic Bronze Age logic is this? I can't believe these arbitrary, stupid rules that men used to live by. Who knows what kind of blatant disregard they would have for the law of God. Well, anyone with that attitude, their eyes have not been opened to behold the wondrous things therein contained. So what is wonderful about these laws against touching? Certain things that would render you ceremonially unclean? Well, I submit among them would be the answer we gave from last Sunday, the Mount of Transfiguration. Something happened. God was setting up a culture of distinction so that when Christ arrived, the dramatic change would signal that the Lord of glory had touched ground and taken on flesh, and now the redemption that was hoped for and anguished for because of these terms that the law had laid out had finally arrived. What happened after Peter, James, and John saw the power and coming and glory of Jesus Christ shining and this voice from heaven and a cloud of glory just like Sinai? They were on the mountain with Jesus, as we mentioned before. Well, you can, tell, you can see why they'd be terrified. How is it that we are touching the mountain and not dead? When God, the same Yahweh that spoke to our forefathers in this firestorm on Sinai, is speaking to us now and even more, showing us with resplendent glory, the second person of the Trinity in his pre-incarnate godness, divinity, glory, if you will, right before our eyes. They're terrified. What does Jesus do? Does he say, keep your distance, get back? Or does he say, you should have been smart enough to, get, to not uh, touch this mountain? And call the other disciples to stone them. No, he touches them. He touches them and says, do not be afraid. You can read all about it in Matthew 17. What has bridged the gap between the untouchable holiness of God and the sinner? The answer is Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Who would be most grateful for the healing touch of Jesus but a leper banished in the colony who would be most predisposed to understand the gospel? You think, oh, this great, you know, discrimination against lepers in that day. What horrible just inequities, you know, in social circumstances they must have faced. Thank God we're not that bigoted today. You know, not recognizing that there were wonders in God's law. And I guarantee that if you were struck with leprosy in that time and the healing touch of your Savior demonstrated that the radioactive holiness of Almighty God could heal you body, and if he could heal your body, heal your soul, and that caused you to open your eyes to the wonders of God's law, you would spend the rest of your days thanking him for leprosy and thanking him for your banishment. Wondrous things. But we can't see them if our eyes aren't open. We can't see them with the lenses of the fake virtue of our day clouding our judgment to the holiness and glory of God revealed in his powerful scriptures in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, You have not come to a mountain that can't be touched, but you have come to Mount Zion, 
There's a distinction drawn between the provisions of the old covenant and the fulfillment of the new and Jesus Christ and his revelation taking on our sin makes all the difference. We needed to be taught as a people, humanity needed to be taught that we deserved to be banished, ostracized outside the presence of God. We had no business in the same room, same unwashed sinners such as we are. But thank God, we also received the lesson through the scriptures that the atoning blood of Jesus Christ can render us presentable before a holy God when he touches us and the leper is cleansed and the dead is raised and the sinner is forgiven because he shed his blood. It's a sufficient sacrifice on our behalf. The psalmist says, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Spurgeon comments, says of the author, he presumes David, he had not half the Bible, but he prized it more than some men prized the whole. The author of Psalm 119 had not half the Bible, but as Spurgeon rightly notes, he prized it more than some men prized the whole. Do you have the U version on your phone? I have a free Bible app on my phone, and I listen to it for uh, kind of the first portion of the day for my daily reading here and there. Well, I noticed 500 million downloads. They had just recently celebrated, and Jen Joel pointed out to me there's a live counter. Every second or two, another download of the Bible is happening. And on one level, that seems very encouraging. More than the population of this crowded nation has downloaded this free Bible app. <clears throat> so it's not for want of access that we remain mired in our wickedness. What is it lacking in our experience? After 500 million downloads of a Bible app combined with every other access that we have in this relatively yet free nation to receive gospel truth, what's the problem? Eyes are blind. Eyes are closed. You might have an app on your phone. It doesn't mean your eyes are open to behold the wondrous things out of his law. So let us pray, saints that in spite of the sojourning call and the darkness that plagues our day, that God would use every single one of those Bible apps, you know, to open the eyes of those who are listening or reading on their phone or otherwise. Sojourner's provisions necessary. Second point of equipment for life, according to Gimel, the sojourner's calling, 19 through 21. I'm a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. And in, in this passage here, we have sort of an outline of the sojourner's calling, and we find, first of all, that he's commandment dependent. My soul, or he says, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. And prior to that, 19, I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. He wants to hear what the Word of God has to say about this issue or about that issue. How many times in our sin do we have a preferred direction and then we thumb through the topical verses to kind of stick on to the decision we've already made? Well, this is a subtle way that the commandments of Scripture may be hidden from us. Better we go to the Word of God first and submit ourselves, our decisions and our preferences, our values and our, you know, uh, uh, would-be decisions, lay them down and say, Lord, hide not your commandments from me. What I need most of all, I pray that I would value highest of all as what you have said, what you have ordained, what you have laid out. 
the author and finisher of our faith, the creator and sustainer of this world, and the one who will eventually consummate his kingdom in glorious forever reality, he is the one we should pay attention to. He is the king who has perfectly laid out our, uh, the understanding of his word and his world for the benefit of those who have ears to hear. <coughs> Therefore the psalmist says, since he is a sojourner, please hide not your commandments from me. 2 Kings 22, 1-14, the law of God is found. The law of God is found. For ages it had been hidden who knows how long. At least decades it would, it would appear. And then during the commencement of temple reconstruction or renovation, the word of God, which had been lost in the hearing of the peoples, is discovered. And when it is given to the king, Josiah, as I recall at the time, repentance happens. There's a shaking. There's basically a terror that floods across the king and those with eyes to see. Why? Because the commandments of the Lord had been hidden from them. And because they had not availed themselves of the commandments of the Lord, and there had been this distance between the proclamation of God's truth and their day-to-day -day decisions and lives, they now knew they stood culpable and accountable before a sovereign God. And there was no excuse. And so what did they do? They repented. They read the law. They took heed to it, similar to Nehemiah 9, I believe, when the people reconstitute for temple worship and they stand for a quarter of the day, which, by the way, is why we in this church stand for the reading of God's word. It's just a physical expression of honor that we seek to echo from those times when people took the reading of God's law seriously in ancient Israel. Repentance happened. That distance from the commandments, whether in their hearts or even in the copy, you know, in their hands, was not a good thing. It had yielded generational sin and darkness, depravity and exile and uh, judgment. And now as they repented of their sins and the sins of the fathers in the book of Nehemiah, the Lord had mercy upon them. And they realized that by his commandments they must live. And if they are a sojourner on the earth, they are absolutely dependent on the word of God. So this ought to inspire, so attendant to this truth is proper affections. That means desires. Verse 20, the psalmist exclaims, My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Hey, uh, kids, can you tell me a rule in your house? Somebody tell me a rule that's in your house. Uh, no jumping on the furniture. Really good rule. Um, another one back there, Isaac. Don't hit your sister. Was that it? Yeah, that's a good rule. Good rule. Any others, kids? Any other household rules? No jumping on the furniture. No hitting your sister. Um, you know, fin over here. Oh, Bell. Say it a little louder. Don't climb on the table. Awesome. Yeah, those are good, reasonable rules. I think everyone would agree. How many of you kids love those rules? Well, usually rules, Isaac says yay. <laughs> he says he does. Usually those rules are meant to curb behavior, right? It's because we want to climb on the table. There's times when we feel like hitting our sister and when we consider it fun to jump on the couch that we need those rules. So when our heart basically is not in tune with the uh, vision, if you will, with the uh, order that our parents have established for the home, those rules, we don't love them. They're sort of a begrudging, just 
boundary for us. You know, they just define what we can't do. Someday you might think when you're a little kid, I'm going to have my own house and we're going to jump on the table whenever we want to. Someday when I have my own house, I'm going to invite all my friends over and we're just going to jump up and down on the bed and the couch to our heart's content. You know, that sounds funny, but underneath, of course, is a heart of rebellion. It's this desire to be free from the strictures, the authority, and the order that your parents have established in your home. And sometimes these things, you know, you might argue with them. They don't make too much logical sense to you. You have to be very careful, though, because with rules comes an acknowledgement of authority and submission, which is the way God has ordered things. Now, as you grow, kids, and as you get your own house one day, I trust as you follow Christ, you're going to repent. One day you're going to pay $1,200 for a couch, and there's no way you're going to let your kids jump on it. And at that point, what you've done is you've realized your parents' vision for the home, and you're now implementing those same things in spite of yourself in your own life because you've seen that those rules are there for a purpose. The wise and mature man is consumed with longing for God's rules at all, all times. If you consider the boundaries that God has set up as cramping your style and you can't wait to be free and you're looking for a little more freedom, pushing the boundaries, redefining them around the edges, you're in sinful rebellion. And what God calls you to do is repent and return to the order and ask that he would change your heart, that he has established for his house. Kids, what's God's house? Church, that's a good answer. Heaven, that's a good answer. How about the world? Does God own the world? Very good. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The creatures, everything that dwells therein. So when you are in the Lord's house, whether it's here at church, whether it's out there in nature, whether it's in glory as we imagine one day, don't jump on his couch. In other words, don't break his rules. In other words, uh, and, and furthermore, realize that there is a purpose and an order. You may be too young and immature to understand, but, to suffice, but suffice it to say, how shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to the word of God. His, we are dependent on God's commandments. They establish a perimeter whereby, whereby we can thrive and be safe. Another analogy I like to use is train tracks. Now, a train is efficient and powerful and effective when it's on those tracks. But those tracks, very, they, narrow, they limit the direction, the path and destination where that train can go. And the conductor might say, you know, I'm going to put some rocks in front of these tracks. I'm going to jump it and take off through that swamp. How far will he get? Not far at all. Why? Because he's left the design of that very enterprise in the first place. We are like this with the law of God. The law of God is tracks. His statutes, his rules, his commandments, his testimonies, they're the tracks whereby humanity can thrive and can glorify him and can have safe passage through the sojourning calling unto glory one day. And we should love those tracks. We should polish them or whatever, keep them free of debris because the Lord has ordained them as the very means whereby we can uh, be preserved on our path from here to heaven. Finally, under Sojourner's Calling, there's this, call, there's this adjournment to be sober-minded. In verse 21, you rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. So you see the kind of juxtaposition there. On the one hand, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. But what about on the other hand, the insolent and accursed 
or the insolent ones that wander from your commandments, they are accursed. So those are your options. You can have the bountiful blessing of the Lord sustaining you and opening your eyes to behold the wondrous things out of your law, if and only if you are consumed with longing for his rules at all times, or growing to that standard at least. Or, on the other hand, you can be rebuked and accursed as the insolent ones who wander from his commandments. So you can see even here the poetic language, wander. There's a sojourning call that has a direction, and then there's the wandering, getting off path. When you don't keep the word of God as your lamp and your light, if you don't affix your attention on his precepts, rules, and so forth. If you do so, then you wander, and the consequences of wandering are, in fact, this uh, judgment and discipline. Sometimes the Lord will bring his discipline to bring you back into the fold if you are his. But for those who prove that their, their unbelief by wandering from the Lord, though they once had something of a profession of faith, all that remains for them, barring repentance, is to be rebuked and accursed forever. This is why hell exists. The sojourner's provisions, the sojourner's calling, and finally this morning we close. Equipment for life according to Psalm 119, 17 through 24. The sojourner's allies, 22 through 24. So you can imagine on a journey how you could feel insecure and out of place, unfamiliar surroundings, and who do you have to turn to? Everyone's a stranger if you're on a journey far from home. 22. To take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. So who is, uh, who is your ally or who can stand for you uh, during this dislocating experience of feeling alone, vulnerable, and abandoned sometimes in the sojourning call? Well, there's an appeal to heaven one can always make. And to, it's to heaven, so to speak, to the Lord, his God, whom the psalmist turns. In verse 22, when he says, Take away from me the scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. This, this reminds us, this verse, that the sojourner's call will be mocked and belittled by his pagan neighbors. Think of the uh, contract between Balak and Balaam. We referenced that in passing last sermon. So Balaam, the prophet, so to speak, he's more like a diviner or something like that, like a necromancer. He's like a, a, a witch or something. What's a better word? Magician. He's hired by Balak, the king, to curse God's people. God himself intervenes on behalf of his people, rendering their enemies fools. New kids, I'm sure you remember this, but the story is humorous. Balaam ends up arguing with his donkey and as it turns out, the donkey was displaying better spiritual understanding and better spiritual eyesight. And the people of God are sitting ducks. They're vulnerable. There's no way, if you just consider the odds, military strategy, you know, uh, with just weapons and, uh, and experience in warfare and so forth, that they could stand up in a fight against Balak and all his armies. Uh, but Balak, uh, he's you know, recognizing this as opportunity to stamp out these potential threats to my kingdom. So I'm going to hire this guy to curse them and so forth. But God turns the plans on, on its head. And in spite of himself, Balaam a number of times ends up blessing and proclaiming messianic prophecies over the people of God. He is literally unable to follow his own intentions and will to curse God's people. 
And meanwhile, he looks like an idiot because his donkey can see the angel of the Lord and recognize this is a bad idea. And he himself is arguing with his beast of burden, striking him in his frustration. So this appeal to heaven proved to be the true source of security for the people of God. So long as they turned to the Lord and trusted in him, God would win their battles this way. He would turn the Midianites upon themselves so they didn't need to even raise so much as a sword. Gideon with his 300, with unconventional weapons of war, trumpets, and torches, routed thousands upon thousands. Why? Because the appeal to heaven was really was uh, the deciding factor there. The people praying that God would defend them. That God would intervene. That he would take away their scorn and contempt of the Midianites or the Moabites or others. <clears throat> and if you read further in the story, though, tragedy strikes. In Numbers 24, 17, that's where, you know, that, uh, that's that prophecy we referenced before where Balaam, in spite of himself, declares that a star will rise out of Jacob. But as you continue to read the story, so long as the people kept his, his testimonies, they were safe from Balak and his minions. But eventually they were conquered, and they were conquered by their own lusts. They started to intermingle and marry and lust after the uh, women of the foreign lands. And when they did so, they were overtaken, they were destroyed, they were overrun. The sojourners' allies are the Lord himself. When the people sought allies with the pagan neighbors by compromising the covenant and intermarrying, and thereby adopting the customs, cultures, and idolatry of the land around them, God brought swift and decisive punishment. And it's a reminder to us to look to true allies and not be deceived, even in the days where we feel alone and vulnerable in our journey. Now, we can gain such courage that we can stand even before princes. Our writer says, Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Verse 23, Jesus says, echoing this sentiment in Matthew, I don't know if you remember this, I think it's chapter 10, 8 through 20. Uh, don't be concerned what you will say when you are led before kings and governors for my sake. And he goes on to say, the spirit of your father speaking through you will give you what to say. Now, it can be very intimidating for us to maintain our Christian convictions when the leaders, the kings, the president, the administration, whatever, you know, the tyranny of the day is basically um, using the occasion of something like COVID and the policies and so forth to wage war on the Christian convictions of a people. You know, of course, a perfect example of this was last year when it, uh, we were told to social distance to not gather as the saints of God in this place and worship him. And out of defiance to that, but in submission to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we gathered anyway. Now, I remember conversation. I mean, it wasn't like we were, you know, try we, we weren't like, you know, beating our breasts like Rambo or just uh, great heroes in this political battle or whatever. There was days when we really uh, were a bit nervous in our flesh about the consequences of that kind of thing. It can be very intimidating to play chicken with princes. Why? Because they have the power to send you to jail, to audit your taxes, you know, to <coughs> turn the media horde against you. I mean, we're facing so many enemies. If you adhere to the tried and true Christian worldview, which never changes, by the way, in our day, then the, al or then the enemies that you face are very intimidating on the surface. So how do you face big tech 
and a tyrannical government and false edicts and a, a governor who takes public health more seriously than the worship of Jesus Christ. How do you face them down with confidence? The answer is here in verse 22. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. So even as you might read the statute, the unjust, arbitrary edict that Governor Walls might you know, dictate to prevent the people of God gathering for fear of this ostensible viral pandemic situation, what I would consider us to do, or what I would encourage us to do, is consider more consistently the statutes of God. What does Jesus Christ tell us to do? Does that carry more weight than any old government or prince that has set themselves in opposition to Jesus Christ and his word? Absolutely. So even though princes sit plotting against us, your servant will meditate on your statutes. And this sufficient source for the sojourner of meditation on the word of God is the very means that the Spirit will use according to Jesus' own promise when you are paraded before governors and kings on His sake to speak with authority against those who would challenge His great name, His holy word, and His forever kingdom. And did this not happen? God took mere fishermen and they stood down princes in the New Testament. Peter and John were willing to take stripes and go boldly the next day right back to the streets in the face of opposition of the religious leaders and political leaders of the day. And we see Paul arguing the case of the gospel as if Christ were on trial before court after court after court unto the Supreme Court in the day of ancient Rome, all the while never backing down and calling kings and magistrates to repentance such that the fruit of his and others' labors revealed themselves in the scriptures say there were believers even among Caesar's own household. How is it that there were believers in Caesar's household? Well, it's because the Holy Spirit answered the prayer, prayers like this one echoed in Psalm 119, that even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Final verse, your testimonies are my delight, they are my counselors. Your testimonies are my delight, they are my counselors. <clears throat> this world looks to all kinds of sources uh, for counsel. The experts of our day, political, you know, whatever, presidential cabinets are made up of those who are supposed to be best equipped to speak to certain situations. This is nothing new. First Kings 12.8, we have the account of Rehoboam's uh, young uh, counselors that told him that he better exercise a real authority over the people, otherwise they're going to get out of hand and so forth. So people seek counsel. Um, in order to uh, secure their future. And against all of these false counselors that we have in our day and that were surrounding the era, the culture, the time, the history in which these words were written, the testimonies of the Lord ought to be our delight. This is the supreme legal counsel, the testimonies of the Lord. The only expert that really carries the day is the, is the one who knows the future and has it or, and has ordained it from eternity past. The only expert who can really read a situation and then grant unto us tools of discernment to know how to interact in all sorts of challenges that face us is the author and finisher of our faith, the one who created and sustains the world, as we mentioned before. Thus, his testimonies ought to be our delight. We close this message by recognizing if you've been, if you've been taking the highlighter challenge, Every synonym for the Word of God, I'm highlighting. So if you want to take that challenge at the end, we'll count them all up in our sermon series. Today we have eight of them. Verse 17, that I may live and keep your word. 
uh, verse 18, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law and hide not your commandments, 19. Verse 20, for your rules at all times, my soul should be consumed with them. Verse 21, he brings a rebuke against those who wander from his commandments. Take away from me the scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even when though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. And your testimonies, again, are my delight. They are my counselors. So you see, even with the poetic structure, those eight references to the word of God in so many words, Remind the reader, the singer, remind the author that in these is a sufficient source for the call of the sojourner. Equipment for life, no matter what trials we face. The word of God is sufficient for the trial of sojourning. Let us remember this with whatever challenges we face in our day. Let us close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that we've had to consider your word. I pray, Lord, that you would embolden and strengthen and equip your church through the proclamation of your scriptures this day. I pray that you would give us foundation under our feet when it feels like the shifting sands of culture threaten us on every side. Lord, we know that the anchor of our faith is Jesus Christ, a rock that will never be shaken, destroyed. And those who try to will be ground into powder. Upon this rock, we pray that you would build us your church, the small representation such as we have here, but that you would join these living stones with other living stones this globe over who will take a stand with us that Jesus Christ is Lord, there is no other, and upon his word we stake our claim. I pray as we do so, Lord, that you would give us encouragement to point to you and to always remember that this is a great privilege and honor for which we do not deserve. But it's the least that we can do in light of the great salvation that Christ has purchased for us to with boldness, no matter the cost, seek to be obedient unto him and follow his word, his law, his statutes, his testimony, his way, and so forth. Lord, give us this kind of conviction and courage, even in the face of trial, recognizing that we have sufficient equipment in your scriptures to guard and guide us along the way. And we also look forward, Lord, to the coming of Jesus Christ again. And even uh, if not before that, our own assumption into glory, as it were, when Jesus Christ proves that he has victory even over death itself by ransoming his people from the grave. Thank you, Lord, for your saving power. Thank you for the promises of the gospel, and thank you for the assurance that we find in your scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.